Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Uh, this is it. This is the ending. We're landing the plane in Nehemiah this week. This this series, the rebuild, where we focus the first half on really the heart of a leader and then the heart of a community. All of that comes to kind of an end uh, this week. And it's been a good book for us, I believe. But one thing that's kind of interesting about how Nehemiah uh, is formatted is is the ending, because how it ends is not a storybook ending. If you've read ahead. Right? Last week, we covered the text where there's uh, holistic celebrating. The men and the women and the children are all celebrating, uh, recounting the works of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. They're singing and rejoicing and thanksgiving and cymbals and lyres and choirs and all this stuff. And it's just this epic celebration. You're like, yes, this is wonderful. It seems like the perfect place to just, just cut the book off, roll the credits, have the happy ending, and, and just move on. But then we see chapter 13 happens, what we're looking at today. And in chapter 13, after the celebration, Nehemiah throws some dude's belongings onto the street. Uh, There's a group of people that Nehemiah says, hey, if you don't leave, I'm going to lay hands on you. Uh, A dude gets his hair pulled out. Uh, there's, some, there's some interesting stuff that happens. And Nehemiah kind of ends the book by saying, God, remember I tried. And that's it. We're like rolling over. Where's 14? There's no 14. Like that's how the book ends. And this is just kind of an interesting ending. It leaves us kind of looking for more, looking for a different ending, a more uplifting ending to the story. Uh, But we just don't get one. And yet by the end of today, as we leave, I hope that this messy ending is actually a, a comfort to us. Because though our hearts are drawn to neat, tidy endings, uh, those neat, tidy endings aren't really relatable to the mess that is our life. This book relates a lot to us, whether we admit it or not. And what first seems like a messy ending um, is really a beautiful ending. And it points to what we'll go through really until Christ comes, which is the other point. This ending, it also points us to the need of Christ. The, the understanding that new systems being installed and walls being built and organization happening and all this stuff, those are all good and great, but those are not what our eyes are ultimately on. What our eyes are ultimately on is the return of our king when Jesus will come forevermore and reign and none of this stuff will happen anymore. This book leaving you on, on that kind of hanging moment is going, hey, don't, don't rest your hat here. Remember that a king is going to come back. Now, one of the major ways to look at the ending of this book is to understand, too, that you and I are always changing. We are works in progress. That old mantra, well, I'm saved. I don't need the gospel anymore. That is heresy. We're always changing. On this side of eternity, we have kind of a constant need uh, for cleansing and repentance and sanctification to trust Jesus more and more with our life. Now, this does not mean that we view ourselves as utterly worthless and dirty and broken, that God loves us, but we're actually just incapable of good or anything. That's not at all what it means. We, if we are believers, have the ability to say no to sin and our primary identity, if we are in Christ, trusting him for the problem of our sin, is that we're beloved sons and daughters, clean, loved. But despite that reality, what we have to do is hold in tension the fact that though that is our identity, we will try and cast off that identity quite often, forget it, and walk in sin instead of the reality of what God has done through Jesus for us. And this creates a scenario where we need to be kind of keenly aware of how we're living 
And here's the other side, just important. We need fellow brothers and sisters to be up in our business and watch how we're living as well. Our church family will need to watch us, not not to smash us, but to love us by calling us to repentance at times when we kind of fall into some sinful habits. This is the deeper reality that that takes place in chapter 13. So Nehemiah leaves for a while. Remember at the beginning, King Artaxerxes lets him go, but says, hey, I need you to come back. Well, this is the time when he goes back, fulfills his promise to King Artaxerxes. He's gone probably four or five years. And when he gets back, the people of Israel are, are once again a hot mess. They're living in sin. Uh, no one was calling each other to repentance while Nehemiah was away. And, and over the several years, it led to a culture that just kind of embraced sin. It was, it was fine. It was no big deal. And slowly but surely, they stopped pursuing uh, righteousness. And, and they began to just justify and rationalize all the things that they wanted more than God. So Nehemiah comes back, possibly like a wrecking ball, and he confronts it. Now, mind you... The stronger reactions only come from Nehemiah when necessitated, right? He will ask people to repent in a certain way most of the time. Repentance and calls to repentance don't always have to be with with anger and yelling and force, but sometimes obstinate sin does require strong action where someone in the church will go, you can't do that here anymore, And that's where we see kind of the stronger reactions from Nehemiah in the book. So with that in mind, that you and I are going to need to be aware of how we are living uh, and and that others are going to need to call us to repent at times, how does that make you feel? Do you like that idea? The reminder that you're just going to go the wrong way sometimes and that people will need to say something? How do you respond to confrontation personally is kind of the opening gateway question that we have to ask. How do you respond to confrontation personally from a brother or sister when it involves your sin? Do you respond with humility, open to see that you you may need correction, that you may have some blind spots? Or do you in anger and bitterness and resentment uh, and judgment just kind of lash out at the person? Do you accept that maybe this is a kindness from a person? Or do you begin to go, oh, no, you didn't, and leverage all of their weaknesses against them and turn that call to repent to you into a fight of you versus them? Oh, no, no, we're going to go at it now. This is war. What do you do when you're called to repent? When someone talks about your sin or brings it up? And then we need to look at the flip side of this as well. We don't just need others to help us hear me, this is what healthy community does. We're also called to help the other believers around us when they slip into sin. So how do you feel when you see a a brother or sister in Christ walking in sin? How do you react when you need to confront them over the sin issue? What happens then? How does your heart deal with that? Do you run from it? Do you get hot and sweaty and you don't like it? Do you ignore it? Do you, do, you, do you tell other friends about it instead of the person that actually needs to be talked to you? Do you get bitter and frustrated with the person who's sinning, just taking this, they should know better type of attitude and just kind of walk away from the deal? Or, or do you intervene? Even more so, possibly after you have called someone to repent of sin, in love, do you regret it? Is, is your mindset, man, I should have just kept my mouth shut? I should have just walked away. I should have just, I should have mind my own business. I should have just left it alone, especially maybe if you've called someone to repent in love and they ended the relationship because of it. Do you look back and go, man, I should have just never done it. I knew I should have just left it alone. I could have been watching Netflix instead of doing that. How do you react? These questions have to be wrestled with because the reality is you and I are humans. 
And we're going to have some issues on the side of attorney. Eugene Peterson says that we are people with an enormous capacity of self-deception. Meaning we inside can make a lot of excuses and we can turn a blind eye to a lot of things that we're doing because we're so incredibly able to deceive ourselves. And because that we are fallible, we'll need confrontation by other people in love at times. For followers of Jesus, for those who are born again, going, I am a sinner in need of a savior and I've fallen short and praise God, he's paying the bill for my sin and he has made me righteous. When you walk in that way, remember the beginning doorway into the gospel is an understanding that you and I aren't perfect. But then confrontation over sin, if you're trusting in Jesus, for those who are born again, uh, should really bring about a result of humble repentance. Yeah, you're right. I did. My identity's in the wrong place. Man, I fall on those things. Man, I'm sorry. Sincere apologies. Heartfelt thank yous. Thank you for caring enough to say something. Not abandoned relationships. Canceled people. What we'll get into later, claims of spiritual abuse. Because calls to repent are meant to not be considered attacks on your character. Somebody's not calling you less than human if you've sinned. They're meant to be God showing his mercy to you through someone else. That's what Hebrews 12 says. When we are called to repent, it's God showing his love and his mercy to us. A good father doesn't let their kid run a mess. They go, hey, I love you. You can't do that anymore. Calls to repent are seeing that our father is a good father. So when confronted over our sin by another member of the body, this is God using another person to show you how much he loves you. And if we reject that person and reject that call to repent in indignation, we're actually rejecting the love and kindness of God, setting up what author James Hamilton calls roadblocks for God. Do you understand that? Like God is trying to reach in and love you and you're like, nope, nope, nope. At a certain point, if we always turn away from repentance, we are not letting the love of God get to our heart. It's a dangerous spot to be. So let's read the text. Let's see what happens. We'll dive in a little bit more. Hopefully we'll see how this may apply to our own lives. And then hopefully we'll, we'll rejoice in the reality of Jesus, though. Because, yeah, this is a hard ending to swallow, but it points to a beautiful ending when Christ comes back. We'll read parts of, this is chapter 13. Again, we won't read all of it, but chapter 13, uh, starting in the tale of verse 4. Eliashab, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. If you have paid attention at all in the series, you're like, "Uh uh-oh. Verse 7, and they came to Jerusalem and then discovered the, e- the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Verse 10. I also found out that the portions of Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each into his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? That one word should just churn our heart when we hear that. Why is the house forsaken? 
And I gathered them together and I set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the wine and the oil into the storehouses. So context is important. Um, before Nehemiah had left Jerusalem back to King Artaxerxes, we saw that the people, they, they, they built the wall and then they read the law. They broke out the law of God and then they began rejoicing as they repented from their sins, knowing the goodness of God, worshiping together. And they decided we're going to renew our vows, our covenant with God. A huge part of the renewal of this covenant was this very specific spot, uh, idea. They would not leave the house of God unattended. Right? They just renewed their vows, and part of it, I will not leave your house unattended. Meaning they, they wouldn't go about their own lives leaving God's house empty, Sunday service empty, corporate worship empty. They, they would not do that. They, they uh, would give sacrifices and offerings so that the house could run forward. They'd put Levites in charge so that worship could take place. Levites were the ones who, in the house of God, they made sure that we had like all of the stuff set up so people could worship. Right? This was a huge part of the covenant. We will not leave your house abandoned. Nehemiah returns, and he sees Eliashab had the guy in charge, was now related to Tobiah. We'll get into why that's a mess later. And that same Tobiah was their enemy. Do you remember the text before? This is the guy who was mocking and threatening and trying to turn the king away from them and cheered against their building uh, efforts and said, hey, man, if a little fox jumps on your little wall, it's going to fall. He, he, each way, he was threatening to try and hurt them. Well, Eliashev had given Tobiah a large chamber in the house of God. And this chamber is where the grain offerings were meant to go. The frankincense, the vessels, the tithe, the wines, the oils, the stuff meant to be supplied to the Levites and the singers and the priests and the gatekeepers was supposed to go in that room. The enemy now had a room where the stuff was for worship needed to go. This is unimaginable. They, they cannot worship because they let the enemy have the house of God in the area where they worship. It'd be like coming in here and seeing where we gather on Sundays only to find that it had been turned into a man cave for a guy who hates us, angrily opposes God. Where worship once was, now there was some other dude's idols and his furniture. Tobiah had been a bully to Israel this whole time. Now the bully took over the house of God. This is a big deal. Casting out the things of worship and putting his toys and knickknacks and furniture in its place. So Nehemiah sees this. He runs in with anger, an anger not different from the anger that we see from Christ as he runs in with a whip to the house of God to cast out the, the money changers. And notice, Nehemiah foregoes all decorum. There's no conversation there's no, let me hear their side of the story. He runs in, airmails dude stuff into the street, right? Out. We need to see this for what it is. This is something my heart has been wrestling with for so long. We've been so scared of being that guy that we have condoned way too much in our homes, in our world, and in here as well. Notice there's no debate. There's no playing nice with the things that steal worship from the house of God. 
those things are expelled, no questions asked. Well, I don't know if that's very, no questions asked. The things that steal our worship, there is no tolerance, there is no patience, there is no compromise, those things are expelled. Nehemiah does show a different attitude to the officials, though. He confronts them over their sin, over the neglect of their worship and their covenant, and he asks them, why is the house of God forsaken? What have you done? What happened? Why, why did you do this? And what we need to understand is, is what we call confrontation in, in the Bible is a holy moment where someone's called to repent, to stop their sinning and turn back to God. And here's the beautiful part. As Nehemiah did that, they repented. We see that fairly quickly they bring the elements of, of worship back in. They're fine with, to, with, with Tobiah being kicked out. They bring the stuff back in and they engage once again in worship in the house of God. There was a moment of confrontation, of a call to repent. And in that holy mu- moment, worship is restored again. In Nehemiah 13, 15 through 18. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. This would be like you not being here right now to go work or watch football or because you partied too late the night before. Right? That, that they're doing other things so they cannot worship. They're bringing in grain, heaps of grain, loading them on donkeys uh, and also wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of loads. It wasn't like, oh, they just, like one time there was extenuating circumstances. What he's showing you is they're doing a world of other things when they're supposed to be worshiping and remembering the Sabbath. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrians who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I, Nehemiah, confronted the nobles, again, confrontation, of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? And now you're bringing back more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath? What is he saying? That's why we had to rebuild this wall as you did this before. What's going on? Why are you doing this? Watch the bigger picture again. Because these are the tenets that we need to grasp a hold of. Watch as it unfolds. While Nehemiah is away, they stop prioritizing worship in the house of God. One. Faith in God and observing that faith gets kind of pushed to the side in the moment. They stop remembering and engaging God and his faithfulness and his goodness to them. And before long, not only had the house of God got turned into something that it was not supposed to be because they were not worshiping there, but then they began to completely forget the day of the Lord and worship in his house altogether. Do you see that? They first don't worship, then they don't even remember don't even care. The Sabbath has always been meant as a time when we stop our laboring and stop our work and instead remember how God has worked on our behalf, remembering him as he has commanded by worshiping, resting, and slowing down to behold the goodness of God. Well, instead of slowing down to worship God on the Sabbath like he required, And I want to say this because we're so afraid of being legalists. He didn't say if you want to. He required it then and he still requires it now. Why? For our good. The people turn the Sabbath instead into just another day to build their own kingdom 
yeah, yeah, I'll do my own thing instead. Another day of work, another day of grinding, of buying stuff, of selling stuff, of doing whatever. Soon enough, the people's lives lacked all worship of God, and that lack of worship caused them to not even value, take part in, or or think of the gathering where we remember God instead of do our own thing. Now, instead of worship or remembrance, the people were worshiping themselves. You may hear them go, I didn't see them worshiping themselves. When you do your thing to build your kingdom instead of God, that's self-worship. That's what they were doing. By treating the Lord's day just like another time to advance whatever they wanted to do. So Nehemiah has to confront many over this when he returns. And again, like, this is not one old legalistic guy looking for ways. Like, they're doing all the things on the Sabbath instead of worshiping. Right? They're, like, it's carnival of stuff instead of worship. And he asks them, what's this evil thing that you're doing? Profaning the Sabbath. Again, this is what I hope that we hear. This is another holy moment calling them to repent of sin. This is not a guy being a jerk. This is a holy moment. Now again, you may hear this and think, that's kind of legalistic. That's pretty old school. Like it sounds like my great-grandpa it's kind of insane. Like, don't we have bigger things to worry about? Like, there's so much stuff out there and like madness and like so much hate and so much, so much stuff. Don't we have bigger fish to fry than like gathering together and and making sure we're uh, observing the Sabbath? No. If we do not fight to remember and worship, we will quickly turn to idle self-worship and gratifying our flesh. You may hear them go, I don't like that. I don't either. But I do it, and so do you. When we do not remember and we do not worship, we will worship something else instead. Calling each other to remember and worship consistently is our job then. Because when we forget to do so, and let me put this caveat, it's our job with this, not with everybody in the world. Because when we forget to worship, There's consequences in our heart because of it. This is why we worry about members being at church. This is why we push for people to be involved in missional communities. This is why when people get too distracted or just things kind of get chaotic and and they don't come, this is why the church is meant to follow up and go, hey, I love you, where are you at? What's going on? Not because we need to keep everybody like under our thumb and doing our thing and falling in line, but because God told us these things matter and they do. This is what your heart and mind need to hear. And I hope we've even learned this through the rhythms that we had to kind of partake partake in in COVID. Worship and Sabbath aren't options. They are our calling and our identity. Just sit in that. This American culture of church my way and entertainment and all these things it forgets that. Not optional. It's who we are. Why? Worship and remembering and the Sabbath and the house of God protect our hearts. And here's what they also do. They put your satisfaction in Christ over and over. Here's the weird thing. When we forget the Sabbath, we're trying to get satisfaction in other places. When we remember the Sabbath, Christ puts our satisfaction in him. William Blake says this as well. We become what we behold. 
Sabbath, what we're doing here, missional communities, life together with the word open. It's all about beholding something else. You look at Facebook long enough, what does that do to your heart? You look at the world long enough, you look at your desires and your things and your stuff long enough, you become that stuff. So we become those who behold certain things. So we behold the Lord. Why? Because we want to walk like him. How do you follow something that you're not beholding? It's protection. Later in the text, it says that some people kept setting up shop outside the walls. So what they would do is they would spend the night outside the city and they would put these like lean-to structures against the walls, open up on the Sabbath to have this like massive little mini-mall thing happening. Notice... (laughs) Notice the rebellion in their hearts. You don't want us to have it in there? Fine. We'll do it out here. We'll draw the people out. We're still going to disobey. We're going to do our thing. Then imagine how Nehemiah felt. God called him to. He wept over these walls. Remember, these are not just bricks. This is showing the faithfulness of God, the promise of God, the people of God. This is more than just a structure. And and the structure that they came around that, that symbolized so much more and they'd worked for, all of a sudden these Idols of commerce are attached to what they bled for. And he's going, oh, no, 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 no. And this is when, I'm not going to lie, I kind of like it. <laughs> Nehemiah says, leave her, I'm going to lay hands on you, not in prayer. <laughs> right? Old dude's like, I will straight up. Again, you may think this is heavy-handed. It's called leadership and defending those that you love, though. There are lessons here that we can't fully glean what we might should look at again another day, but this speaks to how much we condone and allow and romance things that steal our worship. The people of God, again, are not meant to be police to the entire world, but we are called to be more direct and more forceful when it comes to casting out things that steal your gaze and mine. Why? Things that steal your worship aren't neutral, they're cancer to your soul. We're so afraid of being legalists. I think we've kind of lost our mind. The Bible has certain tenets in place, not to hurt you, not to take your best life now, but to actually put your satisfaction and worship and gaze into a place that brings you hope and peace Enjoy. Be careful about the things that steal your worship. And this can go to like the things that stop you from coming to a gathering or missional community. Absolutely. Then also when you try and open your the word at home, if you're ever doing that and like your phone or Facebook or some other thing just always takes your mind, that's trying to steal your worship. Fight it. Nehemiah 13. 23 through, I believe, 25. In those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair. 
And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to the sons or take the daughters for your sons anymore. This final section, he comes home and he has to address this. The men of Israel have been marrying foreign women, Ashdod, Ammon, and the Moabites, Ammonites and the Moabites. We hear that and we're like, I don't know if I read that before, I don't like it. This is, this is not an issue of race. And it's not about ethnicity. This is an issue of idolatry. If you've noticed everything that he hit head on, worship's not happening, Sabbath's not happening, these marriages, all of them are about idols. All of them are about worship. The people from, the, the, the Ammonites and the Moabites, right? if, 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 you're, if you've read a little bit of the Old, the Old Testament before, they have their own gods and they actively oppose Israel and they have gone out of their way to crush Israel and follow these other small G gods of their own. So what Nehemiah was confronting was how the people of Israel and, and, and think of this right now, like we have like online dating and all this, so like you meet people all over the place. Back then, remember, there's a city and there ain't no homes, there ain't no people. And they're like, how do we get more people and thrive, right? And in a family, like, I got so many chores, have kids. And then 20 years, they can do your chores, right? So they're joking a little bit. They're trying to grow. And in this small city, there's not very many people and their idol is how do we grow and prosper? Like, I'll get a Moabite wife. Or I'll give my son to an Ammonite woman. What, what they're doing is they're trying to bring people together to expand themselves and be able to thrive at the expense of something else. So what they're doing is they're deprioritizing their faith to become yoked to and marry someone who follows another god. What does this lead to? Because you're like, okay, like, so... Well, in the text, it led to this. It leads to children who are not raised in the faith at all. Houses divided when it comes to faith and households who ultimately are devoted to nothing. Right? Here's, here's the idea. When you're like, well, you do you, I'll do me. What does that do? It has two people in a home and both of them do a terrible job of following the faith that they proclaim. It doesn't work. Now, Again, to, if you're like, well, that still sounds racist. In, in Ezra, we see that, that the, the racial divide is not an issue. If people from uh, Moabites or Ammonites, if they uh, renounced their gods and separated themselves from, the, from their pagan gods, they're welcomed into the household of God. They're welcome into the people. They have to recant their gods, but then they are widely welcome. So it's not like, hey, you're just from there. It's you're following those gods. That's the issue. If you want to track that even further, if you're like, well, I still don't know if I like that. Well, Ruth, the Moabite. Right? If you look at the book of, of Ruth, she's grafted into the community of God. And then what happens? Jesus comes from her line. That's what happens. God is not against foreigners. God is not pro-racism. This is not just a, we'll do us and they do them and we're going to stay apart. That's not at all what's happening. This is not a case for racism. It is a very strong case against believe, or marrying an unbeliever if you're a believer, though. Super uncomfortable right now, right? Why? Because our modern day is filled with the mantra, love is love. 
in any way, shape, or form. Just love is love. So this isn't a popular idea. But maybe this distinction will help you. It's not saying it's not possible to love someone who doesn't believe what you do. It's saying you shouldn't attach your life to them because fundamentally you're going to have different life goals and pursuits and beliefs and that marriage is going to be a hot mess because you're always going to be pulling against each other. And either one person will have to sacrifice their beliefs to to kind of appease the other or, or both people will just do a terrible job with their faith to just accommodate the home and make things not a war zone. You're like, well, I don't, I don't know if it would really happen that way. Well, read the text. Nehemiah returns to see kids that don't even speak their language. We get in our mind some crazy backwoods guy, like, they don't even speak our language. That's not what they're doing here. What he's going against is children who do not understand their culture and their heritage. We have a luxury BibleGateway.com. You can get any translation and you can get other languages too. The scriptures weren't translated into many languages at this time. So to have kids that do not speak their language was to have children who literally know nothing about God. Nothing about his love, his mercy, his covenant, his faithfulness. They know nothing of Yahweh. When he says they they don't even speak their language, that's what he's saying. It marks fathers and mothers who have abandoned raising their kids in the faith, who had completely neglected to raise them in the statutes of God. And here's the thing that we need to know, because we're like, well, I teach my kids to speak English. That doesn't mean that you're raising your kids in the faith either. At a core level, Parents wanted to do what they wanted to do. They wanted to follow their idols, and the kids were just things they brought along, so they don't need to teach them about God. Again, four or five years before, Israel had renewed their covenant. What's a core part of this covenant? For God to be their God and for them to be God's people. If you teach, don't teach your kids the language of the, that the word was in at that time, it's going, yeah, yeah, not anymore. I don't care if my kid or your people. It's completely abandoning the pursuit of leaning into, walking in, and being God's people. Worship was cast aside to start. That's how it opens. Then the Sabbath was neglected. They, They didn't care about or prioritize remembering what God was or what he had done. And now many were no longer even caring to teach their kids about God. Yeah, There's other stuff to do. Sunday fun day. This creates another moment where Nehemiah has to confront them to call them back to the love of God, to the faith of their fathers, to remind them of the inheritance that they have in God and the goodness of God. Luckily, all three areas of this, the people cleansed themselves from their sins that they had committed and they repented and they turned back to God. Guys, for what seems like the 1,000th time. Like, again? Again? (laughs) But they only did so because someone confronted them. Make no doubt, the one confronting them was God, but he used Nehemiah to do it. Nehemiah was called to challenge them for their sin. And let me actually replace that. He wasn't, it's our calling to defend each other. So it's not like he had a special calling. He saw it and he confronted it. 
by standing up and questioning the sin that everyone else was accepting, and by not letting it go uncontested out of fear of rocking the boat or anything else like that. And after Nehemiah confronts the people, they repent this time. And the book just ends. Leaving what, like, me and Clayton had some talks about this book, like leaving what we kept thinking like was an anticlimactic ending. Like, that's it? But here is what it gives us. That anticlimactic window or, or um, ending is a window into your my reality. It's a really clear picture into what we go through. We too will need to defend our worship. It's not legalistic, it's a command. We too will have to defend Sabbath and gathering and prioritizing the remembering of God. Granted, our Sabbaths can look different. In their time, Sabbath was a certain period of time, no work, no any of this. For the New Testament, it's really switched into a time of rest that's also paired with a time where you go, I will stop whatever I'm doing, no matter what, to go worship God. Right? So we, we don't have to be legalistic into this one certain form, but there is this remembering that's happening. And then also we defend our families. We will have to prioritize God in our lives intentionally. Here's the hard part. And even when you do, you may still slip into sin sometime. You're like, but I did it all right. I know. And when you do slip into it, it requires another brother or sister to step in to love you with the love of God by calling you to remember God, to repent, and to walk back into the grace that you've been given. In that way, I appreciate this ending of the story because it shows us just what to expect. Right? If, every, if like everyone's perfect and clean and everything's great, and you're like, we just love Jesus and everything's fine, you're like, yeah, my life doesn't look like that. If this is a picture of what to expect, what does that mean? It means that we can't get indignant when confronted by sin. Right? So often, well, I didn't like the way they told me. There's no good way to tell you. Or these moments where we just get surprised by it. Let me tell you, if you're really surprised by your sin, it's an identity issue. Because at the core, if you're like, I, I can't believe it, what you're doing is you're, you're so freaked out because you believe that one thing makes God not love you. He still loves you. You just got to walk away from it. The reality is the enemy of God is deceptive. The Bible talks about it. He's cunning, prowling around like a roaring lion, trying to trick you into all the shiny distractions of the world to give your allegiance, your heart, and your worship to other things besides God. He can't steal your salvation, so he'll try and steal your worship. So it means that we need to expect to, and when I say expect, we're not going all emergent. We're like, ah, oh, sin's fine. Should I sin all the, all the more so grace should abound? No, no, no. But at times when it does, it shouldn't be your norm. Be thankful for confrontation when you do. Hopefully we can skip the putting, like laying hands on people and pulling out hair part. We don't have time to go through that. I'll just tell you, it's not what you think happened there. It still is funny, but it's not what you think happened there. But in love, we have to remember that we cannot throw out the watching out for each other part. The way the world lives, afraid of confrontation or, well, 
boisterous about confrontation when it's not face-to-face, but in in person, scared. We can't do that. We cannot buy into the world's view of letting everyone do what they want, calling it tolerance. That's called insanity. We have to call each other day in and day out to behold Jesus. We're not always calling to repent. We're calling each other to behold, and sometimes like, hey, you're not beholden. Love you, dude. Hey, don't do that. It's, it's, It's not all terrible, but we have to remember it's going to happen at times and we have to understand how we're going to react. Here's the other thing. We have to be keenly aware of the moment in history that you and I stand in. Right now, the hottest topics among like quote-unquote Christian or one-time Christian circles are, are these two topics, spiritual abuse and deconstruction. They're everywhere right now. And I want to be really clear to not try and sound calloused. Spiritual abuse is real, and it's tragic when it does happen. But the growing groundswell that I see all over the place, and I think you would too if you just looked around, is false claims of abuse. Of believers who who have been told that they're sinning and called to repent of their sin, and because of that confrontation and their desire not to repent, they label their leaders, their community, and sometimes their best friends or their parents a spiritually abusive, authoritarian, power-hungry abusers. Right? What moment in history are you in right now? I know, I know most of you are listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, right? This moment that we're in, we need to be careful. Why? when called in love to repent by your fellow believers, when told by a brother or sister, no, over something that the Bible tells you, no, here's what we need to understand. That's not abuse. That's actually love. It's a true faithful friend. Brothers and sisters should be grateful for the wounds that are caused to repentance. Does it hurt so much? Is it good and for your health and for your safety? Absolutely. Why do I mention the, the spiritual abuse and other stuff? I'm not trying to get an ax to grind for other people. Here's why. Because of us. We must be those who reject the notion that love is letting people do whatever they want. Because at times, our hearts will deceive us and, and, our, and our desires will try and hurt us. And in those sensitive moments... We need strong fellow believers to call us to repent, to love us enough to not let us go. So as you walk and that moment happens, when someone calls you to repent, here's what's going to happen. The enemy is going to go. They're abusive. They did it wrong. Authoritarian, legalistic. Like all of these things are going to pop up in your mind and you're going to have a moment to begin to go, yes, they're, they're monsters. They're the bad ones. They're the bad guys. They're abusive. They're terrible. Or to go, no, the community, they're right. You're going to have that moment. Why? How do I know that? Because we've seen that moment all over the place. You're not blind. There's people who are not here anymore because of that exact moment. And you're going to have to fight it when your heart begins to want to turn on other people. Instead, accept cause to repent. thanking God for a steadfast love. Again, does it feel good when you're called to repent? No. 
Why? Because we like to do what we want to do. But it's for your good. We'll wrap up and close. Here's a couple of things that I just ask you to maybe think about. I'll try not to put too many qualifiers with them. Garrett, you can come back up. But how do you respond to confrontation? How do you respond? What this may look like is someone has called you to repent and you leveled them. You probably need to go say, I'm sorry. Repentance probably looks like you were trying to love me. I'm sorry about that. Or maybe someone has called you to repent and you accepted it and you just walked away. Maybe you go back to go like, hey, thank you. That had to be terrifying. That was right and God worked through that and he changed my heart through that. Thank you for doing that. It would have been so, so easy to run the other way. Man, you're a good friend. Thank you for that. How do you respond? Maybe look at that. Let that churn in your mind. There may be things that you have to go back and, and, and even relationships that you need to go mend the fence because you, you didn't respond very well. Some of the greatest things that have ha- happened are times when people have come to me and said, hey, brother, I'm worried about this thing in your heart. If you know me, I'm like, ah, you're right. Thank them. And then the other side, how do you respond when you need to confront someone? Do you come in like a wrecking ball trying to pull people's beards out? Do you run? Do you try and build a weird case for yourself before you do it? Like, Here's the reality. Repentance for you may be God has asked you multiple times to go love someone and you've refused and repentance may be going, okay. Even if it scares the daylights, going out to a brother or sister, going, hey man, I'm really worried about this. Can we talk about this? Those are possibly really scary scenarios for us. Remember, we're not always looking to, 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 to blast everyone who screws up. That's not at all what it is. But at times we'll sin and it's a gift when other people don't let us go in it. That's the core of what we want to remember. And here's the way to look at really the ending. Though our reality right now is just kind of this mess that we'll slip up and have to call each other back and then not do it well and not respond well. And like all of these different things is our reality. There will be a day when that's done. When our forgetfulness of our identity will be gone. When the distraction will be gone. When sin and death will die. There'll be a day when we don't have to repent anymore. Here's the reality. Like there's, there's, there's certain sins sometimes are like, again, ugh, like over a five-year cycle, you're like, I thought I had it. And then you don't, you're so, there's a day that that'll be gone. I think that's the beauty of this text. One day the chaos will end, the pain will end. Jesus will wipe away the tears and we won't have to eternally battle sin and the remnants of the old man that sticks inside of us. That's the beauty and the hope that we have in Christ. Yeah, it's hard now. At one point it won't be. We'll just say this. If you don't know where you stand with Christ or what you make out of him, I would just offer you the same thing we're wrestling with. We've all had to repent if our faith is in him. And I just hope if your faith isn't in him that you put your faith in Christ. If he's calling you, what are you waiting on? There's a good savior who's paid the full price for your sin and he'll love you even when you continue to screw up. Might, might today be the day that you tell him that you need him. It might be today also be the day that we decide, hey, we're going to walk better in this community thing. Responding better, 
and also not being cowards because we'll call each other to repent when we need to in loving patience with each other. We'll take communion today. You guys can stand. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There are communion cups out front. If you haven't grabbed one any time during worship, go ahead and snag one. If, if your faith is in Jesus, anyone can take. But here's the, the beauty. We can take the bread and the cup, and even when we need to repent, as we take that, understand, hey, there's still a sacrifice. You're not surprised. You still love me. You still care for me. You're still good and kind. You still call me your child. So as you take, just remember, hey, you, even if you haven't responded well, there's still grace and mercy available to you. Pray that your heart and your soul would be stirred up by that reality. Christ is so patient and good.